0: Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We are concluding a four-week series in Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 7 that we were calling a Vision of God. And the whole purpose of the series was uh, to know God as he's revealed himself, uh, not as we imagine him to be. And the prayer was that in seeing God as Isaiah saw God, that we would be changed and convicted and transformed in the ways that Isaiah was changed and convicted and conformed. Uh, So this morning, as we finish our series, uh, although we're reading verses 1 to 7, we'll be focusing on verses 6 and 7. And the topic we're considering this morning is God's forgiveness and what that does in your life when you receive it and when you experience it. Now, as we turn our attention to the scripture reading, I want to remind you that God's word is necessary. The Bible is necessary if we are to know God, we are to know his plan of salvation for the world, and how to live a life as his people, a life pleasing to him. Without the Bible, we would be ignorant, we would be blind to who God is and how we might come to know him through Christ and what it is he causes people to do to live lives that are pleasing and glorifying to him. So then to have the Word of God and it being so necessary means that we love God's Word, we read God's Word, we study God's Word, we ask that the Spirit would write it on our hearts. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me now as your act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6, reading verses 1 to 7. Hear now the Word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And join me in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make yourself and your words precious to us this morning. Spirit of God, we pray that you would remove the veil over our eyes and hearts, and that which prevents us from seeing and hearing from you. And we ask that you would grant us a clear vision of the glory and grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. During a children's Sunday school class, the teacher had just finished a lesson on why Jesus died on the cross. To make sure the students understood the point, she asked one last final summary question. Can somebody tell me how you can personally receive God's forgiveness? The room was silent and the teacher began to get nervous. Had they not been paying attention? Was she not clear enough? So she asked again, this time a little more simply, what must you do to be forgiven by God? And finally, one hand shot up. The teacher sighed in relief, and the student spoke up. Well, I guess first you need to sin. (laughs) First you need to sin. Now, the answer isn't entirely wrong. There's some truth to it. You know, Martin Luther was often quoted as saying, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that needs forgiving. Now, to be clear, it's not that you must sin in order, you, you must sin in order to be forgiven, but you must recognize that you already sin if you are to be forgiven. You see, the reality is that you can't talk about the good news of God's forgiveness without first talking about the bad news that you are a sinner. The title of today's sermon is God's freeing forgiveness. And this really gets at the heart of the gospel message. There are many opinions out there as to what the core central tenet of Christianity is. Some say it's love. Christianity is about love or about doing good to others. Some say it's about being holy or living obediently. But at the center of the Christian good news is God's forgiveness for our sins. Because sin presents the greatest problem and the gravest spiritual dilemma that all humanity finds itself in. You see, whether acknowledged or accepted, every single person is born with a guilty status before God because of their sin nature. But they also accrue guilt as a result of actual sins lived out in their lives. And this is what God's forgiveness addresses. Now, I understand this. Starting with sin, and guilt may seem offensive and unloving and judgmental. There are some of you in here that that may be the very thing about Christianity that you wanna change or challenge. It may be that thing about Christianity you are unsure of or maybe ashamed of. It could be why maybe some of you left the church for a while and only have recently started coming back. You wanna dissociate yourself from the talk of judgment and sin. But let me suggest to you this morning that if you reject God, in order to get rid of sin or you relativize moral truth that actually doesn't solve anything. Denying God or diminishing absolute truth may get rid of the word sin, but it doesn't get rid of the effects of sin in people's lives. And you look at the world around us that has worked so hard to try and eliminate God and erase the category of sin altogether. And after all of that effort to get rid of God, people are still trapped in their sense of sin, it still manifests itself. People feel it in their self-loathing, self-hatred, self-condemnation, low self-esteem, body image issues, guilty consciences, shame and disgrace, feelings of being unlovable and unacceptable. You see the problem of sin, whether you believe in the category of it or not, weighs heavy on the souls of people. You see, Christianity is not trying to condemn the world when we insist on talking about sin. Christianity is trying to love the world like Jesus did by giving the correct diagnosis. Because only then when sin is seen as sin can the antidote, the solution, the cure be received. So only when you see sin as sin will God's forgiveness be music to the soul. And the promise we read in verse seven will be a freeing declaration. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I'd like all of us here this morning to leave having and experiencing the free and freeing forgiveness of God. Now, like I said, in order to get to the good news, we must start with the bad news. And that's actually where Isaiah six begins before there's a verse seven. There is a verse five in verse five we read Isaiah's confession of his condition. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Before there's forgiveness, there is an understanding and a confession and conviction of sin, but how did Isaiah get that realization? Well, before verse five, there's a verse three. Verse three is the angel's song about God, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah only received his forgiveness when he confessed his sin, but he only understood his sin in light of God's holiness. And here's the point I'd like us to think about right now. Sin can only be defined and determined by God in light of his holiness. Only God is the absolute measure and standard by which you and I and every human being is compared and judged against, which means this sin, dear friends, is not subjective. It's objective. Sin is not a matter of personal opinion or feeling or perspective or experience. Sin is a failure to measure up against the perfect standard of God's holiness. Imagine you go to an amusement park. There's a new thrilling ride. But when you get in line, you quickly realize that there's a minimum height requirement. Now, you're an adult. You think you reach it, but you come to realize the minimum requirement is seven feet tall. That's the only way that the ride will be safe for you. Well, you get into line anyway, but by the time you get to the attendant, before the turnstile, there's a measuring device and you cannot get through. And nobody in this room, no matter how tall you are, how uh, straight you stand up, no matter how high your heels are, no matter how high you spike your hair, nobody will be able to measure up. All of us will fall objectively short of the requirement. And the reality is it doesn't matter how tall you feel inside. Well, I have a big personality. I identify inside as seven foot, two inches. It doesn't matter if everyone else in the line says, no, no, that is the tallest person in line. In fact, it doesn't even matter if they say this is the tallest person I've ever seen. There's an objective standard and we've all fallen short spiritually. That standard is God's holiness. And so you need to pay attention to the order. Isaiah was only able to experience forgiveness because he confessed his sins, but he was only able to see his sins and confess them because he saw and knew God's holiness. Now I highlight this because if you want to experience God's freeing and free forgiveness, there must first be a conviction and confession of sin. But sin understood in light of who God is. Now, why am I making this point so strongly? Because in our day and age, the biblical understanding of sin has been rejected. People still understand the nature of violations and offenses and transgressions. The only problem is these things aren't against the God. Instead, God has been removed from the picture. And in his place, we put one of two things, two things that people believe that they, we, us, you are sinning against. Two misunderstandings understandings of sin. The first is the misunderstanding Misunderstanding sin is that you sin against your personal conscience. Have you ever heard of people talking about sinning against yourself? You're sinning against yourself when you're not expressing yourself as you really are. It's sin against yourself when you are denying this true part, this authentic self. The language is used that it's dishonest and loving when you suppress your deepest desires and you don't fulfill your own sense of identity. And in this first misunderstanding, sin is against yourself, it's not against God. The second misunderstanding of sin is that it's believed sin is against the collective consensus. Our society and culture has become the arbiters of morality, meaning society and culture decide what is right and wrong. And when you violate the popular beliefs, then you're sinning, then you're offending, then you're transgressing see, when the culture replaces God, sin is a violation or a failure to conform to the standards and beliefs that the world has created. I think perhaps some of us have fallen into this way of thinking. It's what's being preached in the world today. It's the dogma that everybody has come to accept and to believe. Yet if there's no vision of God's holiness, then there can be no real conviction of sin. And if there's no real confession of sin, then there can be no true forgiveness granted. So we start with this point. Sin isn't a failure to be true to yourself. And it's not a failure to live up to the truth determined by the world. Sin is a failure to measure up to and meet God's standard of holiness. Well, therein lies one part of the problem. If that's all you know about God, then you'll live under what R.C. Sproul called the trauma of holiness. Being traumatized because you're in God's presence and it shines an exposing light on the depth and the depravity of the sin in us. So the question then becomes, how are you healed from the trauma of holiness? And the answer is you need another vision, another experience of him. And some of you already know this, I've shared this before, but for a very long time, I had a paralyzing fear of dogs. My parents never had pets outside of tropical fish, and so uh, my first informative experiences around dogs were few but extremely negative and traumatizing. Here's a brief sketch. My uncle and aunt, when I was uh, probably about six or seven years old, um, got a pit bull named Bullet and a Doberman Pinscher named Honey. Uh, They owned a liquor store in Baltimore City, and so they had these two as guard dogs to protect their business. And I visited their store once, and Bullet bit me, and I was scarred. And then a different uncle and aunt a few years later, also owned a business, they dealt a lot with cash, and so they wanted a guard dog, and so they bought a German shepherd named King. King bit my mom. Fast forward a few years, what tipped the scales was that one of my best friends Had a Korean chindo, chindoke, some of you may know it. They left him chained outside all four seasons of the year. They too owned a business and needed protection. And one day while I was over, the dog broke out of its chain, attacked me, bit me twice. I was sent to the ER covered in blood. See, my only experiences with dogs were all very traumatic. So for a long time, I avoided dogs at all costs. If I knew a dog, if you owned a dog, I would not go over. If I saw a dog on one side of the road, I would cross the street to walk on the other. That was my experience, a trauma of dogs. Well, fast forward a few years, well, many years later, I'm renting a room in Abington here. Actually, I've moved up for seminary and I'm living in a home and the family decides one day to get a dog. And they don't tell me. So I come home, and there it is, a dog in a large crate, and I'm flipping out. I'm thinking, this is unacceptable. I'm moving out immediately. I didn't care that it was a puppy and no bigger than my hand. How could they have such a vicious beast in their home? Long story short, I didn't move out, and over the next two years living there, I saw the dog grow from a small puppy to reaching its full size. And this experience now, This entirely different experience formed me in a way that I began to relate to dogs differently. This new encounter healed my trauma. My fear of dogs began to shed. The threat I perceived dogs to be slowly became undone. I even began to think that some dogs, some are cute and cuddly, but it required another experience, another encounter, another vision. In the same way, some of you have only known the trauma of God's holiness. You've only been exposed. And as a result, you carry around in you tremendous guilt and shame that comes from that encounter. Whether those are past sins that constantly haunt you or present failures that are ever before you, you live under the trauma of being exposed by God's holiness. And in response, you try to avoid God at all costs. And that's why God and church and the Bible and Christianity and Christians are only perceived to be threats. Now, of course, there are others of you who are so well churched, religious, devout. And that doesn't mean that you don't wrestle with guilt and sin. Maybe some of you manage your guilt and sin by keeping God close to you, you're religious and you pursue Christian works and spiritual activity in order to manage the threat of his holiness. Whichever you identify with more, the only real way to deal with God's holiness, friends, is to have another vision of God, another experience of him, and that's exactly what Isaiah received. You see, if you only see God's holiness, you are undone. But if you see God's forgiveness, then you are healed. And the trauma of God's holiness is replaced by the beauty of His forgiveness. This is the vision you need to have. So we return to our text. We notice Isaiah confesses in verse 5 I am a man of unclean lips. Now God's response to this confession is not to send him a long list of religious requirements and a uh, to-do list. It's not to have Isaiah read a self-salvation manual, nor is it to hand Isaiah a sponge and say, well, clean yourself up first. What we see is God moving toward Isaiah in grace. The seraphim are dispatched. Mercy comes flying towards him on the wings of angels. It's all it took, a humble confession. So we read in verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now what's going on here in the scene? When you read here, burning coal, don't imagine a white, ashy, Kingsford, you know, uh, briquette taken from your Weber grill. Imagine a large coal engulfed in scorching, consuming flames. So hot that the seraphim holds it with tongs. Now don't lose sight of the irony here, by the way. Seraphim, we, if you recall, literally in Hebrew is translated as the burning ones, the fiery ones. And yet the burning coal is so hot that not even the burning one can handle it. And yet with that extremely hot coal, we read in verse 7, and he touched my mouth. Why does the searing, fiery coal touch Isaiah's mouth? Well, it symbolizes complete and total purification of Isaiah's sin. Remember, it was his lips he confessed was unclean. So God, in his grace and mercy, comes with fire to burn away the impurities and sins that Isaiah could not. And as a result, he is completely cleansed every unclean part about him refined in the fire. This is what God does to Isaiah. And friends, it's what God can do for you. It's what he wants to do for you. God is saying it's not your job to make yourself presentable and acceptable first. It's not to clean yourself up before you come to me. It's not to cover your own mess, because in fact, in covering your own mess, you only make things worse. The Lord is saying, I only have one requirement. Come to me as you are. Confessing your sins and I will cleanse you. Only I've got what it takes. You don't. My mercy will soar from heaven to find you where you are. I'll purify and forgive you. And God is able to do this because the coal comes from the altar. The altar was the place of sacrifice. It was where a substitute for sinners was slain. It was where blood was shed for another. It's where one life was taken so another could be spared. Because a life was sacrificed and blood was spilled and a substitute was given, you can receive the freeing words of verse seven. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Dear friends, it's not enough to only know the trauma of God's holiness. You must be healed by the beauty of his forgiveness. And all he requires of you is behold, be still, believe. He'll take care of your sins from the deepest to the darkest, from the repeated ones to the repulsive ones, from the secret ones to the scandalous ones. How will He do it? How will He take away your guilt and your sin? Through what the coal and the altar pointed to the realities of something better to come. Not a hotter coal, not a bigger altar but a perfect sacrifice. You see, friends, the coal and the altar were just symbols, signs, and shadows that pointed to the Savior. The answer to your sin was God's Son. And So Jesus Christ came into the world to find you in your lostness and cleanse you in your uncleanness. And there on the cross, on an altar of wood, Jesus was slain so that by his blood, you might be purified and washed, clean, refined, and forgiven, wholly, entirely, completely. So we're told in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9, to 9, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you tasted this? Have you been held in the grip of this promise? Do you have a vision of God's forgiveness? Do you believe the words of Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? Brendan Manning tells a story uh, that I've adapted for us. The story goes something like this. There was once a godly woman who was alarmed because she was having visions of Jesus every night and they've occurred so frequently that she sought the counsel of her pastor and they met and he listened and patiently, and she told him about her visions and trying to discern the legitimacy of them or not. Here was his counsel. He said, the next time you get a vision of Jesus, I want you to ask him, ask him what was the last sin that the pastor confessed to him? Well, the next day, the woman calls and the pastor's alarmed, that was quick. And curiously, he asked, well, what did Jesus say? And the woman responded, well, these are his words, not mine. But when I asked him what your sins were, he said, I can't remember. I can't remember. Dear friends, God has removed your sins, and so he does not remember them against you. He chooses instead to remember Christ's sacrifice, Christ's righteousness for you, that you might be fully and freely forgiven. And this message isn't simply for those who aren't Christians. It's the gospel that Christians need to preach to themselves every day. You know, some of you are plagued by sins you committed long ago. And on your best days, you forget about them. But on your worst days, they are ever present. And as a result, you remember sins better than God does. You refuse to forgive yourself. You live with a constant low-grade guilt. You rehearse a song of disqualification every day to yourself. To you, God says, behold, Christ has touched that specific sin your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Others of you are living in sin now, a sin that runs so deep in your life. It's been a secret for so long that you prefer closer to be closer to the darkness than to live in the light. You live in a constant fear of being exposed, truly known, You don't know how to bring that to God after running away from him for so long to you, God says. Behold, Christ has touched that specific sin. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Some of you are failing in the same area again and again, giving into the same temptations, wrestling with the same sins. And at one point, you're just embarrassed to come to God with that confession again. You'll wonder, is it this time that he'll be fed up with me? You believe God forgives big sins? He forgives small sins, but you doubt whether God forgives repeated sins. To you, God says, behold, Christ has touched that specific sin. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And lastly, there are some of you in this room who don't identify with any of the above struggles. You can't think of any sin to confess because you do your very best to avoid them. But what you're actually doing is avoiding your need to be forgiven. You're trusting in yourself. Instead of throwing yourself on the mercies of Christ, it's by yourself reliance in your religious effort that you were trying to cover up sin so you don't need his forgiveness. But that can't erase the stains of guilt and sin and shame. To you, God says, behold, Christ has touched that specific sin. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The gospel of God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ is good news for all who believe in him. And when you believe and receive it, there are at least four freedoms that you will experience. I'll close with these. I won't be too long. First, God's forgiveness frees you from guilt and shame. All of it removed. What crushed you like a heavy weight pressing down on your chest, God lifts off so you can finally breathe. Counts none of it against you, which means now you can enjoy life under his delighting smile, not his disappointed frown. Second, God's forgiveness frees you from trying to deal with your guilt and sins. Now you can finally rest in the one who has taken care of it. Life is no longer about trying to cover yourself up with your good works or cover up your inadequacies by securing for you some other kind of righteousness, some other kind of good identity, whether that's being a good Christian or being a great parent, being an obedient child, a loyal friend, a successful person, you can stop trying to cover yourself up and rest in what God has accomplished for you. Third, God's forgiveness frees you to confess your sins without shame. You're finally free now to articulate and repent of sins you've kept bottled up. I know some of you have never uttered some of those sins in the fear of what might happen, in the fear of them being known. But in Christ, you have new confidence to bring them to light because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Fourth and last, God's forgiveness frees you to love His holiness and be holy as he is holy. If you've been if you've experienced the trauma of God's holiness but you've now been healed by the beauty of his forgiveness his holiness is no longer threatening. In fact, it becomes beautiful because now you can see God clearly for who he is. And if holiness in him is beautiful, you'll soon see that holiness in you is beautiful. So you'll strive to be holy. As he is holy this is what it means to have a vision of God's free forgiveness and it's my prayer that the spirit would grant that to you that you might live in the power of the gospel offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ would you pray with me